0: Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. Now in this episode, it's summertime. Well, okay, it seems like it's not summertime here in LA, but it's summertime. And that means, for many of us, the lime-driven beach fantasies fueled by the likes of Corona. From a brewing standpoint, just what makes a Mexican lager sing? And what makes a Mexican lager a Mexican lager? So I'm talking with Kevin Limone, brewer at Montebello's Angry Horse Brewing Company, about how they make both their light and dark Mexican-style lagers. But first, a message from our sponsors.
1: Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing the pro series hydrometers from brewing america will help you help your beer these american-made nist traceable hydrometers are accurate easy to read and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch two-in-one distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug and play. The AirStill Pro column cools itself with a built in high powered fan. The Still Spirits AirStill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the AirStill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube.
2: I also have uh, the Caballo Negrito on draft at home. Uh, I was an avid homebrewer, so I I like to keep a kegerator around.
0: Well, okay, so let's talk about that. Actually, first,
2: introduce yourself to everybody. What's up, everyone? My name is Kevin Limon. I am a Mexican-American brewer in the city of Los Angeles. More specifically, Montebello. So I started homebrewing back in 2017, and I pretty much knew it was something that I I wanted to keep on uh, pursuing. And as I was going through my undergrad at Cal Poly Pomona, I saw there was a brewer's apprenticeship program at the extended university. The innovation kitchen? Yeah. The innovation brew works. works. Yeah. So they, they are the host for a, for a brewer's apprenticeship program. And since I was going to the time, I, I felt like it was the perfect thing to do. It just, the stars lined up correctly for me and, I, it, it was an awesome course. It covered everything from the history of craft beer to uh, hands-on production. And then shortly after completing the course, um, I landed the gig at Angry Horse, where I serve
0: as um, the lead brewer now for two and a half years. I think it's funny that you went from being uh, what Cal Poly Pomona is the Broncos. Yes, we're the Broncos. To working at uh, Angry Horse. Oh, you know what? I never made that connection. (laughs) I I only only know the Cal Poly one because my wife uh, has her master's degree from Cal Poly. (laughs) Right on. (laughs) So from a Bronco to an angry horse. That's hilarious. (laughs) And how long ago did you uh, make that transition?
2: So I completed the course around um, just a little bit shy of the pandemic. And then I spent probably that whole covid era home brewing and sure enough uh beer still had to be made and i reached out to to nathan who is our our master brewer and president and owner um angry horse was already my local brewery so i would go pretty often and and i would like to talk to the brewers and and we would spark conversation about beer so when I heard that he needed some help in the production side. Um, I paid him a visit. The next day I started brewing with him.
0: Very nice. And I'm trying to remember Angry Horse has been open now for, was it like six years, seven years? Yeah, six years. We actually hit our six year anniversary um, two weeks ago what i thought was kind of cool was when i saw angry horse for the first time that was like one of those places where it was like oh i get it like montebello is actually playing it smart and using the brewery as like a revitalization of the neighborhood like going look we're gonna we're gonna reactivate this area angry horse unlike say a lot of other breweries where you go into like some sort of weird industrial park in order to go find the brewery angry horse is right there in downtown montebello. <laughs> It's right in the smack of it. Um, it, it's funny that you use the term
2: downtown Montebello because that's exactly what we're trying to create. Uh, we're trying to create a, an area for the community to, to have a nightlife and, and something to look forward to on the weekends. Um, I think Boulevard Market is also doing a great job with, with Alchemy Craft and all the food that they have around there. Um, pretty much inviting the community to come in. And I think that's what Angry Horror and, and our partnership with with boulevard, boulevard market does so well um people to jump back and forth in between both spots and since we've been there for six years we're, we're kind of the i wouldn't say the pioneers but we've established a really good community so we're we're very much a community
0: based brewery if you feed them and let them drink they will come <laughs> yeah it's pretty true All right, so let's talk about your relationship with Mexican lager. Uh, As you identified yourself, you said, I'm a Mexican-American brewer. So what's your relationship with that whole world of Mexican lager? Well, to begin, uh,
2: since I am Mexican-American, I I have roots in Jalisco, Mexico. Uh, I I would go pretty often. I I mean, I still do. Uh, I try to visit at least three times a year. And since the time that I was 18, I was introduced to to the awesome beer that they have out there. Um, one of them that really caught my attention was Bohemia, um, Bohemia Oscura, which is, I believe it's a, I believe it's a Bach. I want to say maybe a uh-huh. Um Just such an awesome beer, full of flavor, a good malt character. And as I was going through the liquor stores, just selecting beer, I saw that Bohemia, or more specifically the brewery, which is Cuauhtémoc Moctezuma, had a hef and as well. so my first experience with a hef was through that brewery, and it, it was just amazing we We always talk about the coronas, the modelos um the Tecates, but we there's so much more to go around. there's Victoria uh Pacifico. There's a wide range of grape uh grape brews out there.
0: Well, if I remember my history correctly, I think Montezuma is like one of the oldest uh, breweries in Mexico, like continuing to operate right now. No, uh, it is, yeah. Uh
2: very true. And of course, um while we're on the topic of of Mexican loggers, we know very well that um they're pretty much Vienna loggers that are heavily influenced by by German lager beer.
0: The the history that I've always was taught and listeners of the podcast will know that my, uh, I always have a, a jaundiced viewpoint on beer history uh, in terms of whether or not it's a story versus actual reality is that a lot of the Mexican beer industry, just like a lot of the, actually the American beer industry, uh, the U S beer industry was born out of German and Austrian immigration into the, com- into the countries. Yeah. So we got, you know, Schlitz and Schaefer and Budweiser and, and those guys and in Mexico, Montezuma and and Tecate and Modelo and all those breweries started off in that same vein. Very true. It was around, I want to say if my, if my
2: mind me well, somewhat of the late 1800s. It's in that same ballpark. Of course. And even now, um, there's still a huge population of, um, of German, or what were then German immigrants um, in, for example, Guadalajara? There's actually schools that are um, that are German. Uh, I, I want to say German schools. Instead of learning um, English
0: as your second language, you're you're learning German. It's always interesting to me to see how when cultures start to blend, like what parts get preserved, what parts get you know, a light of what parts get adopted into the, into various cultures. So I, I love that mixing to me. When you do that, you get more interesting vibes. Absolutely. And God, I just sound like I'm from California when I said vibes. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, so we have a long history with, with Mexican uh, loggers. So the big question that I've, that I got, and we talked a little bit about this pre-roll um, in your mind. So if we think, Mexican lager. We say like the the typical picture that somebody would have of like a Tecate or Modelo or whatnot. What makes that different than a Budweiser or a Bush, a, a like a North American U.S. sort of industrial lager? I would want to say that a Mexican lager
2: is crisp, clean, crushable, um, a little bit of a little bit of sweetness, but not fruitiness. Um, and I think that part of that sweetness comes from the corn and you can't have a Mexican lager without corn. And
0: it's funny because right now, like, I mean, we've been talking, this is all around really that golden version of Mexican lager, right? Um, right. the, the, the light version. But of course, if we were to step back and take a, take a look from a f- little further up, we know that there are different varieties of Mexican lager. You just mentioned, yeah, you know, a, a dunkel. You know, um, you know right. one, of my, one of my favorites is Negromadola, which is a dark Vienna lager. You know, <laughs> there's there's more there's more going on than just that that gold color uh, lager that everybody knows. Corn, to, to your mind, is corn consistent across all of those?
2: No, no, definitely not. But when, when we picture a Mexican lager, that's kind of that refreshing uh, look that we see or that we picture in our minds. We want something that is gonna go down smooth, and something that you would
0: drink on a on a really hot day. Yeah, and see, and in my mind, I still want more noche Buena, but that hasn't come across in forever. Oh, the good nochebuena! Uh, <laughs> yeah, they they do it once once a year, right? I think what Heineken owns owns the brewery, and uh, uh, Heineken hasn't brought it into the U.S. in like five years or something.
2: Yeah, I actually um, get some last time I was in Mexico. I went um, during December, which is when they when they bring it out.
0: Yeah. Go here, Christmas beer.
2: <laughs> yep, it's a Christmas beer.
0: We see the we associate the corn with that that lighter style, right the golden mm-hmm. uh, the golden Mexican lighter style. Um, which, to your point, I mean that's I think what a lot of people think of because that beachy tropical vacation thing has been so heavily marketed through the hands of folks like Corona. Uh, and I think what the, the CEO of Modela said that he's trying to push to actually make Modela the best selling beer in the U S in very short order. Like he's like, his aim is to take over Corona uh, past that brand sales and, and then also try and push past Budweiser. So um, that's what, that's what we see a lot. And then uh, Amber, Right, so we got what, like, like the one that everybody can see it uh, in most grocery stores is going to be uh, what Dos Equis. The Dos Equis, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the the Dos Equis Amber, and then as I mentioned earlier, the dark. To my mind, the, the one that I see all the time is the Negra which is arguably the one I drink if I see it.
2: It's probably the the best one. Their slogan is uh, "Crema de la Cerveza," which is mm-hmm. a cream of the beer
0: speaking of those two sort of polls, right. Mm -hmm. The reason, the reason why I grabbed you was when I was talking around trying to find out, okay, like who in LA can I really talk to about Mexican lager who can, who can give me the way to make it right. That would fit into American palates and, you know, into the idea of what Mexican lager is. Your name came up. And part of the reason it came up was because, Hey, you beat everybody else in a competition. Yeah. So, uh, So Chellomania was
2: a competition that uh, Alchemy Craft at Boulevard Market held. And it was between, I believe, eight different breweries. And we did it tournament style, which one beer would go against the other. And what what was really cool about it is that because um, it was tournament style, it wasn't just one day. It was weeks on end that people were participating. So a week, uh, two breweries would face off, then another two the next week, so on and so forth. And See, that's just brilliant from a business that- point,
0: point of view, just to get people to come back.
2: Yeah, it was, it was a really awesome tournament to be a part of. I think the best part about it was that the breweries that we were competing against uh, brought over their people just to... Really communicate and see, hey, how are you brewing your beer and and what are your techniques on this and and what are you using? How much uh, uh, cornflakes are you using? Mm -hmm. Just normal things that brewers would would potentially talk about. We talked about yeast. We talked about grain. um, The hops we would use. Mm -hmm. So pretty much all the raw ingredients were were a daily topic. Can you remember the eight breweries that were involved? not off the top of my head i would I would have to look um it wasn't so long ago, but I remember I remember who we competed against um it was San Fernando brewery Bill and stave, who I believe is um not so much in in Los Angeles. I think they're considered orange, maybe even on your way to San Diego, I'm not sure where they fall um and then. We ended up going against. Oh, I Nor- can't remember Norwalk the last. Norwalk was brewery. in there, wasn't it? Norwalk, Norwalk. competed not with us, but with with the brewery that we competed with afterwards. Okay. I can't. I really can't remember. Um, this, this but yeah, what,
0: we. Ca- this is what brewing does do.
2: <laughs> but nonetheless, um, during the tournament, what was pretty cool is. We were just sharing pints, and people were able to pick apart certain characteristics of the beer. And and, and let me say that most of them, I want to say all of them were great. They're just different to everyone's palate. I mm-hmm. mean, people are used to certain tastes and, and what they're drinking, and a lot of it could be an influence on the brewery. That you frequent um, the tr- the beers that you're drinking at home. If you're not a beer drinker, most people would probably go off. Is it going down smooth? Is it tasting great right away? Um, so th- those are things that people kind of base their judgment on. But when it came to the brewers, they're they're a little bit more uh, um more detailed about what they were tasting, mm-hmm. and that was a fun part about it. Um, I'm glad that we ultimately came up on top, but at the same time, that uh, I'm not too surprised. I think we, we pride ourselves on craft, craftsmanship, and we work really hard to create recipes and, and to see them through. We try a lot of different things, um, and we keep our eyes open to, to the trends and, and what people are trying
0: you know, it's funny that you mentioned like the brewers getting re- really detailed and, and being able to taste things back and forth in that sort of format. I was talking with another brewer earlier today and they did the uh, LA IPA festival a few years back. I remember what, what used to happen at Mohawk Bend and talking about how getting to see everybody's IPA on at tap on tap at once made them realize, oh, we're kind of out of touch with part of what we're doing. So this is part of the thing I like about this new trend. Instead of everybody doing sort of general beer festivals where it's bring three taps and watch the crowd get drunk, now we're starting to see more of these events that are very style-focused or very theme-focused. And so in this particular case, to your point, you got a real good chance to see what everybody was doing with still a relatively narrow sort of style field, right? That, that one thing of Mexican lager. So I like it because it, it gives us a chance to learn.
2: <laughs> no. And I think the beauty of, of the tournament and um, seeing how other people's beers came out was that it wasn't, it was open to interpretation. Like we mentioned before, when we, met, we talked about Mexican lager, a lot of us have the idea that it's a, a golden and, and light. Uh, colored beer, but we we had some in the tournament. I believe it was Overtown that had a little bit more uh, a little bit more um, reddish hues. I wouldn't say that it was on the reds, but it was definitely a little bit darker. So if you were to find somewhat of a Negra Modelo that was a little bit on the lighter side, mm-hmm. um, it was around that ballpark. And once again, it was a refreshing beer. So. That was a nice little twist that they had. Um, and sure enough, during their promo video, they in to Lime. So I, I thought that was nice too. Because we typically see a Mexican lager with a little bit of salt, a little bit of Lime. Mm-hmm. And we think of it as a clear beer, but or as a brilliant beer. But yeah, they, they did things a little bit differently. So shout out to them as well.
0: And that's Overtown over over in Monrovia. Monrovia, correct. And it's funny that you mentioned the salt and lime thing, because if we look around here in Southern California, shocker, there are a lot of craft breweries that are doing Mexican-style waters. It's called Know Your Audience, Know Your Weather, although nobody would know that we have hot weather right now with the way everything's been going. No, we, we definitely got that gloominess going on. But yeah, I mean, there are a number of... Mexican style or Mexican influenced lagers being done by craft breweries. And I think that makes perfect sense in our neighborhood. Um, and I do think one of the best ones was actually uh, a trademark their a la playa with the uh, salt and lime included in it. Uh, sometimes it's a little too limey, but if they get it right, it's actually a really nice thing. But to your point, that plays into exactly the image people have of like in their mind of what it's supposed to be. And good job to the Corona guys for marketing everybody online. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, let's not forget about
2: the micheladas, though. Mm-hmm. Um, for the occasional person that comes in that isn't a beer drinker, but also wants to participate, having that option as a michelada is is really really awesome to have. And um, at Angry Horse Brewing, we we give people the option to either do it with a Caballo Bravo or Caballo Negrito. Yeah. I believe that Caballo Negrito is a little bit a little bit more on the dark malty side, roasted barley, but people really enjoy it. It's it's not your it's not your uh, Negra Modelo per se, but it, it it comes really close, and I think it's still a refreshing and a good option to have in a michelada.
0: All right. Well, and actually, just to make sure, since not everybody is around michelada country, describe <laughs> michelada.
2: So a michelada is a little bit of salt lime. Um, tomato juice um, a lot of people like to go spicy some people add in some soy sauce or um, some more Chestershire sauce uh, just just to get like that little bit of um, tanginess into your into your beverage
0: but somebody took a a bloody mary with beer but with a slightly different spice angle to it and you yeah, know, it's definitely way more interesting than, uh, was it Nebraska red beer, which is just beer and tomato juice. Uh, you said
2: it perfectly with the bloody Mary mix and just different, different spices.
0: But you know, it's so funny cause yeah, you go around to a lot of LA craft breweries and so many of them have the, you know, Hey, for a dollar extra, we'll make any beer into michelada. Um, in fact, I was at one the other day and I'll tell you what, I was surprised somebody went and took an IPA and made an. A michelada ipa
2: oh i know a few people that do that as well
0: <laughs> I, i'm just thinking of how that flavor profile works and i was like okay well hey if you enjoy it dude go for it <laughs> yeah ultimately it's what people enjoy all right you mentioned the Negrita. you mentioned the bravo let's talk about what those two recipes look like all right so
2: uh caballo bravo and caballo negrito both have um German malt, so Bohemian, Pilsner, um, Vienna malt, uh, Munich, Munich 2. Those are all uh, grains that we pick from, that we select from Wireman, which is a malting company based out in Germany. Good old classic German malt. Yeah, I mean, in order to make a, a Vienna lager, you kind of have to go that route. As far as the grain, it, it's pretty standard. I, I feel like most people would use them, would use the same type of, of grain. For the hops, we, we switch it up a little bit. Um, we go with Columbus and, and CTZ, and then we also use a little bit of North, Northern Brewer.
0: I'm guessing you use the CTZ for bittering and the Northern Brewer for uh, flavor and aroma components? Yes, exactly. Right on the money. And actually, let's back up real quick. Can you give a like a rough percentage on the on the malts that you're using? Off the top of my head, yeah, I,
2: I think we we go in for the Caballo Bravo. We're about well. Let me let me rephrase. So at our brewery, uh, we work off of a five barrel system. Yep. And five barrels, we're pretty much creating 195 gallons of wort. As we're uh, as we're mashing in and lautering, we end up with 195 gallons. So that's that's a little bit over a little bit over uh, five barrels. And within those five barrels, the grain bill looks something like uh, probably 200 pounds of a Bohemian Pilsner, maybe half a, a bag, which is around 27.5 of of Vienna, Vienna malt. We might use a little bit of carafoam But but it, it, it's, it's pretty standard. Um, and then for the caballo negrito, this, this one's where it gets a little bit fun. How, how much corn? Oh, oh, that's right. So I think we, we go about like 20 to 30 pounds of, of flake corn. I almost forgot the main ingredient, right? I say, dude,
0: <laughs> come on. Yeah. So I mean you're talking like that's like what 11 like 10-11% corn right of against like you know what is it, like almost like 85% um 85% um Pilsner.
2: Bohemian Pilsner. Yeah.
0: Well and do you do you guys use the Bohemian Pilsner on purpose because you kind of want like a, a a stronger that that's kind of stronger continental grainy character to the beer? I think
2: we we use Bohemian Pilsner just because it's it's probably one of the best quality base malts that we, that we have at the brewery. Um, not not to say that the rest aren't great. We just always see really good consistency, and uh, Bohemian Pilsner. And even when we're selecting beer, I mean, Angry Horse, like we're we're super committed to having our customers experience or giving our customers an experience that reflects our passion and dedication to craft beer. So on the production side, we're always selecting the best grains, and we tend to see what the best grains are year to year based on certificates of analysis. So even even with, with grain and with hops, we're always looking at COAs uh-huh. uh, to see how the crop year went and if there's any changes and the reason why we do that is because um, these ingredients are very much uh, dependent on climate. So we use science to um, determine what our first step in, in crafting a recipe is.
0: Is there anything science can't do? Right. All the COA type stuff, the lot analysis.
2: COAs are pretty much a breakdown of of how the crop went and. For when it comes to grain, it talks about, uh, the proteins, the carbohydrates, all the enzymes that, that go into a grain and how that could potentially affect your brew day, whether it's hitting your numbers, uh, in gravity or how it might manipulate a pH. Um, we all know that when, or I, I guess not all of us know, but, um, when there's tons of protein in grain uh, we we see that the grain might be a little bit uh, full bodied I guess um,
0: well, it can get astringent it can throw a haze it can, do a, it can have a lot of downstream impacts, of
2: course, and we we saw that firsthand at our brewery um, with certain types of grains because of the year. I guess there is a little bit of a drought um, and we were getting boil overs. We were um, slightly low on gravity. And it's just something that we decided to keep a, a keen eye moving forward. And we just, we want to be consistent. And, and one of the ways that we're able to, to do so and, and see those changes is because while we're in while we're doing production we're taking a gravity and pH readings during the mash and every 15 minutes of the lauter and our lauter is about um an hour and 30 and then we also do that with with the cold side of brewing as well and and the reason why it's it might be a little bit of overkill to take a gravity and pH reading every 15 minutes but we use that data and those records um, for other for other batches just to see if we're in the ballpark, and and we were able to trace um, a few numbers back to previous batches and said, "Hey, well, if these numbers are pretty consistent, and this batch isn't, let's look at the COA." And sure enough, we were able to pull it up and and see that it was a different crop year, and and there's, there's variations in that yield.
0: I've talked about it before on the podcast. Like There's a challenge to being a brewer in Southern California because so much of our water is not from around here, and it wildly varies from season to season, no matter how much the, the water district tries to blend to keep consistency. <laughs> so even then, being able to track pH and, and all the other readings, Makes perfect sense. Just because you can also even tell if you are getting something screw screw from your water. Yeah,
2: I mean, if if you don't have good water, you are not going to have good beer. All
0: right. So with the Bravo, uh, so with our with our brave our brave little champion here, we've got um, you said the four malted pills, Vienna about twenty seven or yeah twenty seven and a half pounds, and flaked corn. Uh, I assume flake, right? Yes flake maize, um, with maybe a little bit of care foam, uh, hopped with CTZ and then sort of spiced out with Northern Brewer, which makes perfect sense. Cause that, that was the entire purpose behind Northern Brewer originally. It was supposed to be a, an American grown, we can use this as noble lager hop type hop. Uh, mm-hmm. forgot to ask with you, with your water, since I just went on about water, uh, are you guys starting just carbon filter? Are you starting with RO or are you trying to trying to start from uh, a blank slate? We, we,
2: we we have filters, but we also add in, um, lactic acid, um, calcium
0: sulfate, calcium chloride, just so that we could get our pH correct. We got our hopping that that we just discussed. Um, what do you guys use for lager used? So, this This is where it gets a little bit tricky. initially,
2: we were using, and then for the most part we do we we go with a thirty four seventy which is mm-hmm. probably the most common yeast that that's you'll what find we'll Workhorse. yep, but lately uh we we've done some trials with with the lutra um I'm not sure if you're mm-hmm. familiar with the oh, with yeah. the Kavike strain yep
0: so and, and to remind people lutra is supposed to be one of those ones that's supposed to be clean doesn't Doesn't throw as much of the phenols as the traditional quake strains do,
2: and I, I think it's I think it's very true. Um, I think a lot of people see the range in fermentation temperatures and believe that they could just let it rip during fermentation. By that, I mean uh, letting fermentation just take its course without having so much of a of a emphasis on on controlling temperature, but when we were doing trials with with the lutra strain, uh, we kept it on the low end, mm-hmm. and then once we were comfortable with the gravity um, we treated it like a lager we we let it sit in the conditioning tanks and the bright tanks for for weeks on end and and we did we did for the most part get a really really clean product i i, I wasn't able to tell the difference um
0: well, okay. So then let me ask if you guys are treating it like a lager, use, you're fermenting it cool, mm-hmm. and it doesn't sound like you're under a time crunch because you have the time to lager, right? Correct. So, so you're not trying to, you know, trying to do it like, like a lot of people are doing, like pressure fermentation or using something like the new Nova lager strain. You go, here, look, we made a lager in eight days. What's the advantage? to your mind of using a quake then is it it consistency of yeast strains then so because you can use that in a lot of different places or sorry let me let me rephrase when I meant that we were treating it like
2: a lager we were treating it like a lager post fermentation so we were getting to gravity we we still had we still had the temperature at around uh, 68 70 which is the very very low end Of of that temperature range for that strain, and we were we were scared that we would get a little bit of fruitiness, um, maybe a little bit of sweetness. The sweetness we we could deal with because I mean we do have corn flakes in there uh, or flake corn, so I I felt like it would still be present and be okay. But I was definitely scared that there would be any fruitiness or fruit character in there. And sure enough, once, once we were able to, to keg off the beer and, and, try it weekly, um, we were checking the pH, we were checking the gravity, and we were able to see that, or even the VDK test, so the diacetyl rest. And we, we didn't pick up any of the yeast character. Um, it was, it was clean on the nose, it was crisp on the taste. Uh, no, no phenols were present. Um, which is which is pretty strange, um, but it is what what the strain said does. It it says that it produces a clean, a shockingly clean beer. So
0: well, and as you said earlier, you're drinking a couple month old sample of the beer mm-hmm. right now, and still not getting any of the phenols or any any off flavors. No, and not at all. Well, there you go. Then uh, then uh, it, maybe the magic works. I, I just know like for me, like a lot of times I've had a lot of the quiky logger, pseudo logger type things that people have done. Mm-hmm. There's still just something not right. You know, like yeah, you, know, you can kinda tell, but if you guys are getting good results then And and we're we're probably gonna go back to thirty four seventy.
2: Um but it, it was just a fun experiment to be a part of and at least we know that that we could we could pretty much trust the Lutra strain.
0: Yeah. Push comes to shove. We can do this.
2: Yeah, I mean, if, if we're time crunch, uh, I, I think I'd, I'd feel comfortable getting it out there. <laughs>
0: yep. Well, but I mean, and again, to your point, I mean, 3470 is ubiquitous. Uh, it is well-known. It's all of its behaviors are well-known, and, and the flavor characteristics are expected. And I would guess that there's probably a fair number of the Mexican lagers that are made with it. <laughs> all right, so we got the, the Lutra or 3470. Fermentation-wise, we, we talked about that, you know— changes between the two strains how long usually are you guys going from grain to glass
2: uh it takes about uh maybe like around four weeks okay so it's it's definitely on the on the short end but uh we we've been really happy with the strain
0: are you guys doing any clarification or like other than time or gelatin or biofine or we kind of go with biofine just to be on the safe side
2: but once it's sitting for, for weeks on end of the tank, uh, we're already getting a brilliant color. So it's, it's nice and transparent.
0: And, and it's one less thing to do to the beer.
2: It's one less thing to do to the beer, correct? <laughs> I mean, we're obviously doing uh, the dumps, yeast dumps, just the typical things that you would do on the cellar side.
0: Yeah, all the mechanical things that have to be done. Of course. Nobody's developed yet a magic laser that will go uh, and wipe out all the all the clarity-causing problems in a, in a beer in a tank. So it takes time. Yeah, I wish we had a, a little bit more of
2: the state-of-the-art state equipment uh, to just get awesomely crispier, which, I mean, it's not necessary, but it would be nice.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, look, I mean, it's always nice to have a little extra help, but at the same time, you were referencing, hey, you know, look, we take these pH measurements, we do all this, that, and the other. Effectively, you guys are trying to do manually what may happen for you in a much easier way automatically with fancier equipment. And again, to stress the idea here, you guys are a five barrel brewery. You know that's not a very large brewery. Yeah, and and
2: part of the reason why we went with the lucha strain uh, recently was because uh, we we are small and mighty. Uh, we have to crank out beer um every so often i i'm brewing four times a week uh most of the time and uh doing the cellar work in between as well
0: it's always funny how much more cellar work there is than brewing work let's that's the 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 bravo uh let's talk about the 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 black horse here the negrita what changes i mean because i assume it's going to be very similar yeah, it it is very similar. Yeah, because before, um, before what we had Pilsner, Vienna, corn, and maybe something like Carafoam. Mm-hmm. What, what do we see now in the in the mash tun?
2: Uh, we're we're pretty much swapping out or switching roles with with Pilsner and the Vienna. So we're going a little bit above or around eighty percent of of the Vienna malt, and then we're going with a little bit of the Bohemian Pilsner as well. No, I'm I'm sorry. We're going with Munich too.
0: Okay, so yeah, extra color now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and in this particular case, you're depending upon the Vienna as the base malt. So, Correct. writing in on the fact that Vienna has sufficient enzymes to do the job.
2: It does. We we never had troubles with fermentation. But the kicker and what makes Caballo Negrito, Negrito is that we're using Carafa, ah. which is a highly roasted malt. That just gives it a really, really nice color. And we're not even going we're we're going with probably less than two percent of the grain bill.
0: When you're using the crawfish, you're using the, the special, the dehus the slash dehust. Yeah, the
2: dehusked, correct.
0: Which does exactly what it says on the tin. It gives you a wonderful color with minimal flavor impacts. Except for I always find that a lot of the crawfish has given kind of like almost like a a slightly burnt toffee. It
2: could. I mean, we, we use, uh, we use Carafa. I, I believe we use it for one of our, uh, for one of our stouts. I, I could be wrong. Cause I know that we use chocolate malt, roasted barley. I, I think caraffa might be in there, but as far as Caballo Negrito, um, it's just a very small amount.
0: Well, cause you don't want, or you don't need a lot. You're just literally going for the color impact. Um, and then, I'm, are we doing kind of the same thing on the, the hopping CTZ in Northern Brewer? We're using Challenger. Sorry, it was my uh, sister's dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the listeners of the podcast are well used to hearing our dogs, so it's okay. Um, all right, so you're using Challenger, which… Ter- uh, we're, we're using, we're using kind of like CTZ a, a, and Challenger. Right, and Challenger is a very mild hop. It's not. It's not super, super aggressive. It's an English hop. Uh, and it's actually a fairly neutral English hop. So it's not dirt or earth or herbal or spice. It's, you know, just pleasant is I think the best way to describe it. I,
2: I want to say that it's, uh, I think one of its parents is a German hop. If I'm not wrong.
0: Almost all of these hops have like a German parentage in them somewhere. Right. <laughs> Um, all right, and so we got those differences are we, were you guys playing around with Lutra on this one as well or is it 3470 or has it been both?
2: Uh we we we, we treat both of them as very similar beers. So yeah, we we we've tried the Lutra. Uh, initially it was 3470. Um but yeah, they're 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 brother and sister, you know. Um so we we treat them the same. Um just like all of our beers, we we do all of the all the cellar work on them. We do all the gravity, pH, VDKs. And, and the best part about it is that we get to taste them throughout, throughout fermentation and see how it develops.
0: I was going to say, you get to see how they change, Mm -hmm. which is because of the fact that you guys have more beer that's being produced. And at least in terms of relative to the sample size, uh, and you have, all the protections in place to make sanitary sampling a possibility. That's a great advantage you guys have over what a lot of homebrewers can do, right? You know, most of the time with homebrewing, as you're well familiar, it's like I threw it in the fermenter and I had to wait three weeks. Of course. Did I make something good or not?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Home, home homebrewing was, was fun, but, um,
0: it's a different game.
2: It's, it is very much a different game.
0: Kevin, before I let you go, if you were to try and summarize in a few simple sentences, like what's the best best way in your mind to produce the best Mexican style lager that you can? What are you going to tell people? It's a good question because, I mean, a couple of the things I've seen from listening to you talk about these, I mean, it obviously starts with good base ingredients, and so it sounds like mm-hmm. you favor doing german style malts to reflect into some of that that heritage uh, of the beer mm-hmm. styles and then also uh, noble shops we didn't talk about the ibu levels but i'm assuming they're relatively low they're not doing you're you're not trying to yeah make a uh, make a pale ale or an ipa and mexican uh, sheep's clothing yeah
2: we we definitely want a little bit of bitterness but we don't want the highlight to be bitterness we want to keep it traditional uh we want to keep style or we want to keep the mexican lager as close as a historical representation so getting getting the the grains that would best represent what that style would be um as well as the hops and the yeast strain is is a little bit more difficult but see what works for you you know um i know a lot of breweries um have different equipment whether it's conical uh unitanks uh, a lot of those things are factors so uh if I were to if I were to give any advice I would say use science as your background for selecting grains do trial and error with a sensory analysis on hops kind of break down all your ingredients to see what's going to work best for you and and obviously taste what you're doing and then as you when you come close to finalizing the recipe make sure that you're doing the work to stay on top of the characteristics and and what's happening in your beer.
0: I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the big things that homebrewers do all the time is they absolutely focus on the recipe and they focus on the brew day mechanics. Mhm. And they get sort of lazy, lackadaisical, take your favorite term, uh, and let the rest of the the process slide. And by the way, for everybody out there, I'm guilty of this too, All right, Like, I've lost batches before because I was a dummy who waited a week too long to go transfer things. Um, so, I mean, I think your point is when you're doing something like the Bravo, you don't have you know, just like when people talk about trying to make a Budweiser clone or Budweiser homage, you don't have a lot of room to hide. So your process has to be tight and you have to be paying attention to what you're doing and refining what you're doing to both the situation that you find yourself in now and also in in the situation that you want to get to. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly. So don't be lazy. <laughs> a lot of a lot of are, are 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 very lazy, and I include myself in that batch. One last question before I let you go: If people wanted to go beyond, say Corona Modelo Tacate and really sort of understand like what Mexican lager can bring to the world, what do you recommend both from Mexico itself and from around the Los Angeles Southern California area? Uh,
2: I would want to say to people. That if you're out there looking specifically for a Mexican lager, um, just kind of have a general background that if you see a color that might be slightly darker or might have a little bit of more bitterness or or malt character that doesn't go down as clean or crisp. um, Just know that they're probably right on the money on the style and um, just try them all don't don't be afraid to go out there and and say hey
0: uh what's a munich dunkel or your original suggestion back when we were first starting like when you talked about your history of mexican beer uh bohemia i um, you can find bohemia here in the states if you can find good fresh versions of bohemia uh, they're a top notch brewery Shocking. yeah it,
2: it it's kind of it's kind of sad that um, the best-selling Bohemia beer was uh, the Bohemia Oscura, mm-hmm. and they kind of shied away from that now, and when you go to your local uh, grocery store or supermarket or liquor store, you're not going to find that beer as easily as you used to be able to. Instead, they replaced it with the Bohemia Pilsner, which is, is it's it's a great beer, but it, the, the Oscura is heavily missed as well. And like you mentioned before, the, uh, the Noche Buena on, um, on the holiday months, uh, that, that definitely needs to make a comeback. And I wouldn't be surprised that if it does make a comeback, um, I, I do think there's a shift in the brewery world that people are kind of um, distance themselves from IPA, not, not forever, maybe just temporarily because people find them or brewers and, Beer drinkers alike uh, always tend to go back to them, but I think there's a shift right now where people are drinking the lighter, the cleaner, the crushable stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it it might be a good idea to revisit some of what influenced beer makers to to create those lighter lagers and pilsner beers. I'm I'm pretty sure. Uh, if a brewer would pick up a a carta blanca, uh, they'd say, "Hey, this is actually pretty good. Um, let's let's try to replicate it." I,
0: I've I've been carrying a lot of water uh, for the last couple of years about classical Belgian styles, right? Because that's that's my homeland, right? You know, like, uh, that's like if you tell me, "Hey, you know, where do you feel most comfortable beer wise?" Belgium's it for me, and I I keep turning around and seeing like how few of the Belgian classics are available anymore. Uh, here in LA, I, I used to always be able to go to like uh, Ramirez from Boyle Heights, mm-hmm. and and be able to go get like reliably weird little Belgian beers. And over time, that's become less and less just because of the shift in the market. So, uh, trust me, you do not have to you do not have to uh, convince me that people need to carry more water for lesser known versions of styles to be able to actually learn like what good people can do with a style.
2: Absolutely.
0: All right, Kevin, just to remind people, you uh, brew over there at Angry Horse down in Montebello, uh, uh, one of those little tiny towns that surrounds Los Angeles, but little but mighty, just like the brewery, and they can go in there. And right now, if they want to go in, like how many beers do you guys have on tap at the moment?
2: We have 12 beers on draft at any given moment. We also have a seltzer, And we also do mocktails as well. So if you have a person who wants to be a responsible driver, we have that option. Um, Everything we brew is with your enjoyability in mind.
0: There you go. And also, just to give another plug out there for the uh, uh, Cal Poly Pomona Broncos uh, Innovation Brewing uh, Program, uh, because they do even actually run a little brew pub on site. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at Mexican-style lagers in all of their wonderful glory. You have plenty of summer left to be able to go and enjoy a nice homemade Mexican lager. So get out there. Pilsner, Vienna, some corn, some noble hops. You've got it. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the H A or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Best Friends Gotta Save Them All, just for another couple of weeks. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Up your IPA game with homebrewing techniques, craft beer clone recipes, and a free book from the American Homebrewers Association. Push your brews to the limits with Brewing Eclectic IPA by Dick Cantwell. Or dive into the science and history with IPA. Brewing techniques, recipes, and the evolution of India Pale Ale by Mitch Steele. Join for one year and receive your choice from 60 different brewing books. Head to homebrewersassociation.org/experimental for offer details. That's homebrewersassociation.org/experimental.